is Our American Stories. And from time to time, we like to deal with some tragic things that happen in life. It's not all daisies and rainbows living a life. And here in Our American Stories, we don't avoid the tragic. And sometimes we actually think uh, by telling these stories, we're making other people who experience the same thing feel less alone. And if you can do that in life, I think it was one of the greatest things a man ever said about another man when the great playwright Arthur Miller eulogized Tennessee Williams. He said, Tennessee made us feel all less alone. And you couldn't say something more beautiful about a person, I think, than that. And the next two stories you're going to hear, one a new one and one an old one, are about infant loss. And that sudden infant death syndrome, that's miscarriages. It happens, and it happens all the time. And so many women who go through this, and their husbands, and men, uh, feel like it's a... It's one of those things that not enough people really understand the depths of grief that come from this. And so we wanted to first start with a story that we bumped into on Good Morning America about a not-too-regular lady going through an all-too-regular tragedy and how she's gotten through it all. And we just had to bring you this story. Let's take a listen. We are back now with Hillary Scott, lead singer of Lady Antebellum, now revealing the heartbreaking inspiration behind her powerful new music. Take a look. On stage, Hillary Scott sings passionately about love, loss, and healing as one-third of the hit country trio Lady Antebellum. But behind the scenes, she's been struggling with her own personal heartbreak. Last fall, I went through a miscarriage. Goodness gracious. Thank you. Now speaking out for the first time about it. This is something that is still not talked about very often. I also feel like there's this pressure that you're just supposed to be able to snap your fingers and and continue to, to walk through life like it never happened. Scott now channeling her pain through music, recording an album of hymns with her family, Love Remains, out July 29th, including the first single, Thy Will. I wrote the song in the middle of experiencing everything that comes with a miscarriage, so it was at my most raw place that I could have ever been when this song truly poured out of me. She says she's approaching life with a new perspective, relishing in special moments with her two-year-old daughter. I'm a different mom to her now. I hug her a lot tighter. For now, Scott's glad to be making music again, back on the road touring the summer with Lady Antebellum. After going through everything that I've gone through in the past year, but also just the process of making this record, I know I'm coming back into the mindset of Lady Nobellum. And you could hear it in her voice, and it's so true. If she had lost a 14-year-old or a 9-year-old or a 6-year-old, people would have treated her a lot differently. And I've had that experience myself with a really dear friend who lost not one but two babies to miscarriage. And she had names for those babies. She had decorated rooms for those babies. And she grieved for those babies because they were her babies. And yet people, I I watched it. I watched people act as if this was something she was going to get over really fast. By the way, October 
is Infant Loss Month. And Ronald Reagan signed that piece of legislation. And it's been so ever since. And now and then, we tell these stories, share these stories, have folks share their stories with us. Our number is 844-627-8255. Leave your story there. We have about five minutes worth of space for you to leave a story about an infant loss. We wanted to share one that we did last October, back when we were doing Infant Loss Month. And this from a man's point of view, because men suffer too. The men name their babies along with their wives. And this is Paul Smythe's story. Jonathan Paul was born at 4.03 a.m. on February 3rd, 2015 in his sack. The doctor said it was an extremely rare occurrence. You can see his little hands and his little feet in the sack, and it was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. Jonathan Paul was 10 and a half inches long and weighed 12 ounces. He was perfect in every way. He had my exact feet and my wife Amanda's hands. He looked just like me, just a lot smaller. We had 32 hours with him in the room with us, 32 hours of hanging out with him, 32 hours of reading I'll Love You Forever, 32 hours of conversations, 32 hours of memories, 32 hours of holding him, 32 hours to say goodbye. Saying goodbye was the hardest thing that I have ever had to do. Handing him over to the funeral director just about killed me. Why, at the age of 28, do we need to make plans for our son's funeral? No parents should have to plan their child's funeral. And the same grief. Country music star, ordinary citizen. We're all the same when this kind of thing happens. Jonathan Paul was his son. Paul Smythe said he was perfect in every way. He looked just like me, just a little smaller. 32 hours of memories, 32 hours of saying goodbye. And here in Our American Stories, we love to make you laugh, cry, or think. It's the motto here inside our studio, because it's what Jimmy Valvano said, the great coach from North Carolina when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, got up in front of the world and said, I'm the luckiest man alive because my dad taught me if you can think once a day, if you can be brought to tears once a day, that is to cry, and you could laugh once a day, and you could do that every day, you would have lived a rich life. So if you know someone in your life who suffered from a miscarriage, give them an extra hug today and pray for them and pray for their baby. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Carrie Underwood's rendition of Jesus Take the Wheel. I know you're wondering why are you calling it a rendition. Well, like, it isn't often the case, and more often the case than not in country music. Sometimes in rock and roll, but often in country music. Someone else writes these songs. And we love to tell the story behind the story of songs anyway here on Our American Stories. We love music. We spend a lot of time on it because, well, we all love music. And some of the stories we've done behind the story of a song, Light My Fire, where Ray Manzarek walks us through how that song got made. It's just terrific. Give Me Shelter. You can't believe what brought that song together and made it stick. And another brick in the wall, you hear from Roger Waters himself explaining how that song came together. And then my personal favorite, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life. Wendell Mobley, who wrote the song, tells the story about how that song came to be. We hear the songwriter sing it, and then ultimately, of course, we hear Kenny Chesney's take. And in this particular case, it wasn't Carrie who wrote this. And again, Carrie Underwood, as you all know, was a big star out of American Idol in 2005, and she's gone on to just do such amazing and extraordinary work in every venue, including Broadway Live, which she did on television. She did The Sound of Music, and it was unbelievable. Uh, I think Julie Andrews was like, oh my goodness, that girl can do it. And it was live, which is no duck walk. So this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, was written by a guy named Brett James. And here he is talking about becoming a songwriter, his first guitar, and writing his first song. The very beginning for me started in Waco, Texas. I was a student at Baylor University. Any Baylor, I'd sit there. And uh, I'd grown up singing in church and, and being around music. I came from a really musical family, but I didn't play an instrument. I didn't, never thought about writing songs. I'm from Oklahoma, as is Ryan and Randy Grimmett. Any Okies out there? Um, and... Growing up in Oklahoma, probably like where a lot of you guys are from, you know, becoming a songwriter is not on the list of professions that they give you when you enter high school. And so I didn't know my job existed, and so I didn't know that I could, I could go after it. Um, when I was 19, I asked for a, a guitar for Christmas. My mom bought me an $80 pawn shop guitar. It was a, called a Lincoln. It was a, nobody's probably ever heard, I'd never heard of a Lincoln. The action was about an inch and a half off the strings. I do remember that. <laughs> I then bought immediately uh, John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow songbook because I already knew the album. And I thought, well, I can, most of these songs have three chords in them. I can probably learn these. So that's how I started learning guitar. And for me, the next step in the process was very simple. Uh, as soon as I learned those three chords, for whatever reason, it seemed natural for me to write a song. Um, and that wasn't something I even thought about or planned on. It just, I know these three chords. Why don't I write something that... that some girl down the street might like. And uh, so that's how it, that was kind of the beginning for me. And that's how it starts off for so many musicians. Self-taught, we learned this about Irving Berlin, taught himself everything from scratch. Brett talks about when he was a failed recording artist, the time he was, and decided to finally just let go. And it was then that he found eventual success. Sometimes something just pops into your head and, and don't ever, for me, it's like, don't ever count it out. You know, and, and no, no matter how simple you think it might be, sometimes simplicity wins the day. Quick lesson for me might to be, you know, sometimes when you let it go, sometimes when you're not pushing so hard, that's when, that's when kind of God just takes over. I, 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 my story is I was in Nashville, real quickly, 
Uh, I got offered a record deal. My first trip to Nashville with Arista was on Arista for seven years. Seven years later, all that went away. I was a failed recording artist, and I went back to medical school. And I started back to medical school on September 1st, and I was 30 years old and going to go be a doctor. But I was still writing songs. Um, I'd given up my dream of being a songwriter, of being a, you know, I just, that's okay. That, I, I, get, I had a great shot, and, and it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, September 1st, I started med school. September 4th, Faith Hill co one of my songs on the Breathe album. <laughs> I ended, <Okay>. up, <laughs> ended up with 33 more cuts in that nine months while I was going to med school every day. And the reason was because I kind of let go. I'd been in Nashville trying to push and trying to force and trying to fit my, what I did into their square hole, you know, or my round <laughs> songs into their square hole. And, you know, when I went back to med school, I said, screw it. I got a job. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I can write whatever the heck I want. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write stuff I like. And I sort of let go. And that freedom that he found leaving his dream got him his dream. Go figure. And that happens a lot, too. Here, Brett James talks about writing the song we've been talking about, Jesus Take the Wheel, followed by his performance at an ASCAP songwriter showcase of the first verse and the chorus. You got a blank sheet of paper looking at you, and what are we going to put on it? And, uh... And, you know, so we kind of started tossing around some thoughts, and Gordy said, you know, I got, this, I got one idea for a title. It's called When Jesus Takes the Wheel. And I immediately laughed. I thought, well, that's about the silliest thing I ever heard. And Hillary kind of chuckled, and we kind of tried to get our heads around that for a minute and moved on to something else. What do you think? Well, let's, let's talk about <laughs> some other titles. That one, I'm not sure about that one. But fortunately, uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, we came back to uh, When Jesus Takes the Wheel and uh, wrote a little song about a girl driving to Cincinnati and uh, ended up being called Jesus Take the Wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with her baby in the backseat. Fifty miles to go when she was running low. Faith in gasoline It'd been a long, hard year She had a lot on her mind And she didn't pay attention She was going way too fast Before she knew what she was spinning On a thin black sheet of glass She saw both their lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the wheel and take it from my hands Cause I can't do this on my own I'm letting go So give me one more chance And save me from this road Jesus, take the wheel And that's the first verse and chorus. And my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's always sent me snippets or lines that she wished she'd written. And the one on this one was 50 miles to go. She was running low on faith and gasoline. And those are little descriptors of that character and the thing that person's going through. It wasn't just that she hit a patch of ice. Her life had hit a patch of ice. And that's why she was asking Jesus to take the wheel. 
Now, you also heard Brett singing, and you could hear clearly why maybe Brett didn't make it as the singer-songwriter. But his God-given talents were in the writing, and my goodness, God-given talents of Carrie Underwood as a singer come to meet these two talents, and here is Carrie Underwood's take on this great song. When she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock And for the first time in a long time She bowed her head to pray She said, I'm sorry for the way I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now on This is Our American Stories, Brett James, his story, and the story of how Jesus Take the Wheel came to be, and Carrie Underwood takes us away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, The late John Mitchum was born in the year 1919. Mitchum was a veteran character actor, playing small parts in 80 feature films, including Stalag 17, Submarine Command, Chisholm, Bandolero, The Outlaw Josie Wells, High Plains Drifter. On TV, he appeared on about 800 shows. Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, Dragnet, Batman, The Twilight Zone, The Waltons, Little House on the Prairie. A tremendous working journeyman actor's resume. Of course, his brother, the big, big star, Robert Mitchum. Mitchum's most memorable role was as Clint Eastwood's detective partner, Frank DiGiorgio, in Dirty Harry, and its two sequels, Magnum Force and The Enforcer. But what he was most proud of 
Well, it was this. John Wayne's performance of his poetry in the album America, Why I Love Her. You ask me why I love her? Well, give me time. I'll explain. You seen a Kansas sunset or an Arizona rain? Have you drifted on a bayou down Louisiana way? Have you watched the cold fog drifting over San Francisco Bay? Have you heard a Bob White calling in the Carolina Pines? Or heard the bellow of a diesel at the Appalachia Mines? Does the call of the Niagara thrill you when you hear her waters roar? Look with awe and wonder at her Massachusetts shore where men who braved a hard new world first stepped on Plymouth Rock. Do you think of them when you stroll along a New York City dock? Have you seen a snowflake drifting in the Rockies way up high? Have you seen the sun come blazing down from a bright Nevada sky? Have you hailed of the Columbia as she rushes in the sea? Or are you headed Gettysburg? Our struggle to be free? Have you seen the mighty Tetons who watched an eagle soar? Have you seen the Mississippi roll along Missouri's shore? Have you felt a chill at Michigan when on a winter's day her waters rage along the shore in thunderous display? Does the word aloha make you warm? Do you stare in disbelief when you See the surf come roaring in at Waimea Reef. From Alaska's cold to the Everglades, from the Rio Grande to Maine, my heart cries out, my pulse runs fast, the might of her domain. You ask me why I love her? I have a million reasons why. My beautiful America, beneath God's wide, wide sky. As recounted in Mitchum's 1989 memoir, Them Ornery Mitchum Boys, actor Forrest Tucker came up with the idea for the album while he and Mitchum were on location shooting the John Wayne Western Chisholm. Mitchum recited to Tucker a poem of his, Why Are You Marching, Son? A poem Mitchum wrote after his teenage son Jack angrily threw down a newspaper with a photograph of anti-war protesters burning the American flag in Central Park. Tucker was so moved by the poem that he had Mitchum recite it for Wayne. Halfway through Mitchum's reading, Wayne had tears in his eyes and agreed to Tucker's suggestion that he record an album of Mitchum's patriotic poetry. The album would earn Mitchum a Grammy nomination in the Best Spoken Word category. Here is John Wayne's rendition of Mitchum's poem that inspired it all. Why are you marching, son? I'd really like to know. Is it 
because of Valley Forge or perhaps the Alamo? Or one if by land, two if by sea? A trumpet's call, the will to be free? And what of a man who stood straight and tall, who wept silent tears when he saw brave men fall? No matter, no difference, the blue or the gray, all were his brothers. How often he'd pray. And what of Antietam, that now peaceful stream where the water blood red glittered and gleamed. Appomattox, Chickamauga, Vicksburg, Bull Run, Cumberland, Gettysburg, and then Washington. Why are you marching, son? In Flanders Field, how proud were they whose forms beneath the poppies lay. Men who saw Verdun and died at the Marne, Soissons, and those who tried the fearful foe at Chateau Terry, who fought, bled, whose hearts grew weary, but in whose minds one thought kept churning, that the torch of liberty keep burning. Why are you marching, son? The plains swarmed in, and the rising sun glowed fiercely on the evil done to men whose blood runs through our veins. Men who died, remains life forever locked in waters deep. Now is it right that they should sleep while the warm sea laps of the twisted hull and see the torch of liberty grow dull? Anzio, Casino, Po, Samariglais, Limon, St. Lo, Garda Lake and Buchenwald, on and on the roll is called. And why? Why are you marching, son? Bugles shrilled in the frozen night and at first dawn, the awful sight of Seas of men, row after row, left to die on blood-stained snow. Busan, Pyongyang, Suwon, Gyeongju, and blood-red ran the swift Yalu. In South Vietnam, the big guns roared, and once again we fought a war. To honor a pledge our nation gave, to help that little country save her people from the certainty that she'd be ruled by tyranny. No matter where the big guns roar, our fighting men like those before take the torch we all held dear and face freedom's enemies without fear. Our fathers died from sea to sea and blessed the torch of liberty. Why? Why are you marching, son? And there you have it, the other Mitchum, the not-so-famous Mitchum, John Mitchum, brother of Robert Mitchum, and what he's most remembered for, aside from all of his work as a solid journeyman actor, was this recording that John Wade made famous, and it's Why Are You Marching, Son? And again, Wayne heard this on a movie set, and ultimately became not just an actor, but a recording artist. And I love that when that happened. Johnny Cash also went on to just do plain spoken word when he recorded the entire New Testament. And people don't know that about Johnny Cash, but he did it. And if you ever have a chance, just go on YouTube. You can hear it. It's unbelievable to hear Johnny Cash read you the New Testament. It's different than how the other boys and girls would do it. This is Lee Habib. This is our This Day in History segment. John Mitchum was born, veteran character actor, 
and co-writer of John Wayne's album, America, Why I Love Her. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us as always by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And at Hillsdale, they don't just teach liberal arts and philosophy. A core part of their curriculum includes students playing sports. And you see it all over the campus because the body and the mind and the spirit are a pyramid to them. And they want to hit all three parts of the human body, mind, and soul together. And on this day in history, a great sports story. Baltimore Orioles legend Cal Ripken Jr., breaks Lou Gehrig's consecutive games record played and sets a new one of 2,131. And Ripken would ultimately set the all-time record at 2,632 straight games played over 17 consecutive years. And boy, just showing up to work every day, no matter what, that's something that's been lost. And what an achievement for Ripken But it wasn't just that. He transformed the shortstop position, a historically defensive position, into an offensive one, too, hitting 345 home runs as a shortstop, more than any shortstop in history. And he's only one of three players ever to have 3,000 hits, with most of them as a shortstop. He won Rookie of the Year, two MVP awards, and two Golden Gloves, with the fifth highest fielding percentage of any shortstop in history. So it wasn't just that he played a lot of games straight, though that's a big achievement. It's what he did and how he did it, too. And to celebrate Cal Ripken Jr.'s life, we're going to bring you highlights from his Hall of Fame induction speech in 2007. Here's how Cal Ripken started things off. I've really appreciated all the people who have congratulated me in the months since my election to the Hall of Fame. It sure helped me get over a conversation I had recently with a 10-year-old boy I was instructing. I was teaching him hitting, and he was starting to have success and feeling quite proud of himself. And he asked me, so, did you play baseball? I said yes, I I played professionally. And he goes, oh yeah, for what team? I said I played with the Baltimore Orioles for 21 years, and he said, what position and I said mostly shortstop but a little third base at the end and he began to walk away and he looked back and said should I know you (laughs) that's great that certainly puts all this in perspective and it does and it's humbling and Cal's a, a huge 
influence. And if you're a, a resident of the Baltimore area, you know how much baseball means to Cal and teaching kids. And he's just a force of nature, even after his years on the ball field. And then Cal addressed why we're celebrating him today, his 2,632 consecutive game-playing streak. I know some fans have looked at the streak as a special accomplishment. And while I appreciate that, I always looked at it as just showing up for work every day. As I look out on this audience, I see thousands of people who do the same. Teachers, police officers, mothers, fathers, business people, and many others. You all may not receive the accolades that I have throughout my career. So I'd like to take the time out to salute all of you for showing up, working hard, and making the world a better place. Thank you all. And it's just class, straight class. Cal Ripken Jr. then thanks his parents and siblings and then goes on to thank the family that he's created and he struggles to do, well, the pauses you're about to hear are Cal Ripken tearing and choking up. And our children, Rachel Marie and Ryan Calvin, they not only gave me a whole new understanding of life, but they also continue to bring me pride as they... <laughs> as they continue to grow and meet life's challenges. I'm so proud to stand here today and tell them how much I love and care for them. Next to them is the love of my life. She didn't know anything about baseball. She didn't know anything about baseball or me when we first met, but she has learned and stood by me and supported me throughout our years together. Kelly, I hope that you know how much I appreciate your love and you're always being there for me. And Cal Ripken, well, you could hear the emotion. You heard it in Brett Favre's speech, and that's on OurAmericanNetwork.org. Take a listen to it. It was something. Next, Cal Ripken Jr. talks about a lesson that Cal Sr. taught him, his dad. But his children helped him fully appreciate. We all hear about how baseball imitates life, which held especially true for my dad. He used to say that everything that happens in baseball happens in life, and everything that happens in life happens in baseball. He certainly taught us about life through baseball. But I also have to admit that as a young man with a limited view of the world, baseball and life became one for me and it was difficult to see beyond playing the game. Did you ever stop to think about how your life would unfold or imagine how you would like your life to turn out? One of those reflective pauses happened in my life when I was around 18 years old. I thought I had it all figured out. I would play big league baseball until about 45 and then worry about the rest of my life after that. It took me a little while but I did come to realize that baseball was just one part of my life, with the possible exception of this weekend, of course. This was never more clear to me than when we had children. 
I realized that the secret of life is life, and a bigger picture came into focus. Games were and are important, but people and how you impact on them are most important. Pretty simple, it would seem, but coming from an athlete of his stature and status and watching an athlete actually live that out in your neighborhood, and I lived in Baltimore. I called it home for quite a while, and the Cal Ripken stories were everywhere, everywhere. And you can't fake that stuff, folks. You either are that guy or you're not, and that was Cal, the guy you're hearing now. And Ripken concluded that once he had realized just how big of an impact he had on his kids' lives, well, he could have that kind of an impact on other kids' lives as well. And again, that's the Ripken. Any of us who lived in the Baltimore area got to know some of the ball fields he constructed, the amount of kids he supervised, the amount of kids he just personally coached. He loved to coach, and he didn't want any money for it. In fact, he would just write checks to do it and then find and beat up sponsors to write even more checks and a lot of at-risk kids. Particularly, this was a fondness for him. Well, all this changed how he approached the game he loved, too. When I realized that I could use baseball to help make life better, especially for the kids, baseball became a platform. By trying to set a good example... I could help influence young people in positive and productive ways. And some of this became apparent to me in my earliest playing days. So as, a major league, as my Major League Baseball career unfolded, I started paying a little more attention to my actions. I remember when Kenny Singleton showed me a tape of me throwing my helmet down after a strikeout. And all he said was, how does that look? I remember learning about a family who saved their money to come to Baltimore to see me play. I got thrown out in the first inning and their little boy cried the whole game. I remember how I reacted with anger when dad was fired after an 0-6 start. And after each of these events and others, I vowed to act better the next time. Yes, these were only little things, but as dad used to say, If you take care of all the little things, you'll never have a big thing to worry about. As the years passed, it became clear to me that kids see it all, and it's not just some of your actions that influence, it's all of them. Whether we like it or not, as big leaguers, we are role models. The only question is... The only question is, will we be positive or will, we be, will it be negative? Should we put players up on a pedestal and require them to take responsibility? No. But we should encourage them to use their influence positively to help build up and develop the young people who follow the game. And again, Cal Ripken did that. He's still doing that. And on this day in history, he broke that all-time record of playing and showing up every day But the real, real contribution in Cal Ripken's legacy will be, A, what he did to the position of shortstop, which is remarkable, and what he's still doing in his hometown of Baltimore and the greater regions around Maryland. And also the example he set for all athletes, how to conduct yourself, how to play hard, how to win straight, how to lose right, and how to serve. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This day in history... Cal Ripken Jr. breaks the all-time record of games played consecutively.
young man who came to this country at the age of 14 as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you heard the call at the Indy 500 in 1969. And the man we're about to talk to in our American Dreamers series won that race. And it's quite a life story. And, of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb. And, my goodness, a racing icon would be, well, just selling him short. And joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamer series, Mario Andretti. Let's start where we always like to start all of our interviews in the beginning. Tell us about where you were born and tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, I was born in Italy, um, and the region is uh, Istria, and however, now it's uh, Croatia. And there's uh, the story, obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the States, because um, I was born in 1940, at the beginning of uh, World War II, and uh, uh, that region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been, but... Uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost. Uh, and uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito. And uh, there was a choice for all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become um, refugees, basically, uh, back in mainland Italy. And uh, and my family chose that, you know, the latter part uh, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship. And uh, we were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to... Um, to come to America, we had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here, in, in fact, in Nazareth, where I live now. And um, and this, it was suggested that why don't you come here? Uh, we would uh, guarantee um, that you have a home, you know, and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas. And that's the story. And what did your dad do, Mario, there uh, in, in Italy? What did he do for a living? And what was it like for you as kids? I mean, you went from having a home to living through war-torn Europe to now living in what I guess you could just call a, a camp. Almost, a, it sounds like a not a prison camp because it wasn't, but a refugee camp couldn't have been that, that plush. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was nothing normal about what happened to us, obviously. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, credit to my father. First of all, uh, the first part of the question, my dad, uh, uh, was administrator of, uh, land holdings from the family, uh, on his, uh, on his mother's side because he lost his, um, uh, his parents at age two and four, respectively, 
and he was raised by uh, a priest, the uncle priest, and but the family on that side owned uh, about 2,000 acres of land, about 2,100 acres, and uh, seven tenants, and my dad was the administrator of that, of those holdings, and basically he was a farmer, and uh, so he had no other skills, you know, when we... Um, uh, when he moved on, and uh, that was a difficult part, obviously, uh, to be able to obtain uh, a professional job of some kind. And uh, and when we were while we were on the camp, as you said, I mean, uh, conditions were very very basic. But uh, again, my dad always provided for us. Uh, we were always uh, dressed properly and uh, went to school and uh, never cold and uh, never hungry. You know, he always took took care of the family. Uh, that's a very proud man, and that's something that I've always looked up to to him because of uh, of that. He had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way. And he never quit, Mario. It sounds like he never quit on you, his family, despite the the toughest circumstances. So you're living in Italy, uh, and you you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man. That, that moves you to think about or at least dream about uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy? Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954, and uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol. It was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion uh, for Ferrari. And as you can imagine, there's an Italian driving Ferrari and and being uh, so strong uh, as kids, uh, I be you know I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And uh, as an idol, he uh, he just actually helped shape my future. To be honest with you, in my own mind, because between uh, my twin brother Aldo and myself, uh, from there on, we did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what, had no idea how or when, you know, things were going to happen because there was, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives. And uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But um, but the dream never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong. And uh, at first opportunity, uh, you know, we pursued it. You know, when we came to the States two years later, Aldo and I started building a car to race locally. We're going to hold that thought, and when we come back on the other end, this incredible life story, a story that started in Italy, that was impacted by political tumult in Europe, and ended in a little town in Pennsylvania called Nazareth, the life of Mario Andretti, when we come back. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
around the world asks anybody, you know, who is, who is the greatest American racing driver, I, I, I think 90%, literally, of the people around the world would say Mario Andretti. You just heard from Autosport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti. You were lucky in this respect. You, you come to a place called America and to a small town called Nazareth. Not far away is a little dirt track. From what I from what I understand, Mario, right. and you and your twin brother, without your dad, I don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't. Uh, talk about what you guys did. What was that first car? By the way, we love just asking people what their first cars were, anyway. But what was that first car? And what did you and Aldo do? What was the first race? Talk about both of those things. Well, first of all, the uh, the car that we built was uh, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, which was uh, actually. Um, a car, a car that was uh, brand that was very successful in NASCAR racing, and that was uh, not popular. That car here at this local level, but uh, but we chose that, you know, with the help of some other, you know, couple other friends, uh, which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking, <laughs> yep. and uh, and we followed that advice and. Uh, and we built that car, and and uh, but uh, we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh, here. Um, you know, he knew that we were following motor racing, and um, and we were all in. And as kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something, and uh, then Alberto Scotti is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955, uh, on a way over on a ship, Conte Biancamano. Uh, during the time that the 24 Hours of Le Mans was running, that's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport, always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever, uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So, uh, seen for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, "Oh, kids are crazy. Don't even think about it." Type of thing. So uh, he certainly did not, in any way, understand how strong we uh, believed in it and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car, and I didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And, um, and this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And, um, and in 1959, I took, we figure uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything, uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished uh, two years later in 1959. We were only 19, and we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So uh, we had uh, we fudged the uh, birth date on the licenses, and uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days. Obviously, there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that. And uh, we started racing at age. 
19 without my dad knowing, and the only defense that we had on that, uh, or the buffer that we had there, was the uh, language barrier, you know, because my dad obviously did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, you, things, because we were winning races, and, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, I keep saying this, uh, which is a fact, and uh, it at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. They just want to, he didn't understand. He thought right. that the boss was t- telling him how good he was at his job. So, um, again, it wasn't until the end of the season at the very last race, an invitational race, that uh, Aldo uh, almost killed, you know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which, uh, you know, we had a... Um, Actually, uh, fracture skull and all of that. So he was in a coma for you know for a long time, and uh, he was even given his last rites that time. And my dad didn't even know it, but he, that's how he found out. And he almost felt vindicated. You know, see, I told you guys. You know, <laughs> type of thing. Yep, yep. And by the way, we we recall we we spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story. And Aldo had said it. He was sure glad you had to tell him you yeah, guys were I know, racing. It, uh, when Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while after he opened his eyes and so forth. You know, it took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, "I'm sure, you, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man." <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, we got him back. <laughs> uh, so your you, your career, your your brother was racing, uh, but you you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who were who were key people in your life, Mario, who who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you? Your well, team. I mean, there was uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see. Uh, the burning passion that uh, I had. And, uh, uh, you know, after this uh, stock, I didn't want to make a career out of, you know, local stock cars. I wanted to get into single-seaters. And uh, and my one of the first ones that actually helped was uh, my uh, now my wife, my wife's father uh, and, uh, and his partner. They, you know, I needed to buy a midget. A midget uh, car, a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter, and that's where a lot of the owners will scout drivers, you know, for the full size midgets for the regular season. And uh, and I was I bought a uh, a famous car, and I made a deal with uh, with Earl uh, Earl Hoke. It was uh, you know my uh, Hoke is my uh, my wife's maiden name, and. Uh, and they invested in that car, and that's what got me going. It was another plateau, a launching pad, if you will, because uh, I won some races. I was competitive, and uh, I got noticed, and I got a, a really a good ride uh, with the Mateka brothers in uh, Midget, which were running the ARDC Club, American Race Drivers Club, uh, which was a very prominent Midget uh, series. Uh, with all the icons of major racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadier, some of the icons of major racing is of the era. And uh, and that 
you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then uh, uh, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, the Rufus Gray team, uh, he, Rufus Gray, the individual, actually he owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names, like Judd Larson driving for him and, and USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and they obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing. And he gave me a ride, and he became, you know, uh, sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing because even though it was not the top category, sprint cars is a step below the championship cars, uh, but I was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrating into sprint cars like A.J. Foyt, Roger McCluskey, Don mm-hmm. Branson, all the top drivers would be driving this, Parnelli Jones driving in these uh, sprint cars, and I would be driving against them, and all of a sudden I was started winning there. And uh, so, uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you, you get a ride because uh, the main driver is hurt. Yep. In those days, it was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and, and uh, and earn my my way you know uh, into a solid ride so uh, again it was just uh, everything was by chance you know there was no guarantees anywhere you had uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world but you had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere you just had to be there and seize the opportunity and that's really the way it worked out for me you just had to be there and seize the opportunity and that's what so many greats and so many people who quote get lucky or quote have opportunity they're just there and you're there often enough and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life this is lee habib this is our american stories our american dreamers series with mario andretti continues after these words from our sponsors This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with our conversation with Mario Andretti, and we focus in on the family and the importance of family. I want to talk about your wife, because she played such an important part, Mario, and particularly in the early days, where she was, in some ways, helping support the entire project, and how does a guy do this without a strong family background? It's got to be hard. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I tell you what, you, you have no idea uh, the important role uh, that she played, um, you know, in, in my career and and uh, and, and in, in, indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because, uh, you know, the uh, uh, you know even as an individual, uh, she. I knew that she would take care of, like, you know, we got married, I got married young, and then the career was going, I had kids, and I didn't have a steady job. I was relying on, uh, you know, just what I could earn racing, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it can be, yep. <laughs> it can be pretty sketchy sometimes, <laughs> right. but, but it worked, and, and she worked, you know, like even, to give you an idea, when, um, uh, when, 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 when I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three-quarter midget, that her dad had financed she was working and uh, she was pregnant and uh, on her way to one of the races uh she's she's just like sobbing a little bit you know i said what's what's the matter and she said i just quit my job i said you did what are you she was seven months pregnant <laughs> i said you did what how dare you I said how am i gonna get this because i had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors <laughs> i said how am i gonna pay for the engine i said you know to keep freshening it up she said oh no this and that so <laughs> as you can see she was paying for me freshening up the engines <laughs> from week to week you know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know, <laughs> so, and things like that. But uh, you know, we laugh about it, obviously. You know, but uh, she was a rock behind me throughout. You know, and uh, uh, and and again, you know, she she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today. But uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she she had no choice. I guess uh, you know and. She knew that this was our path, and uh, even with the kids, uh, and uh, she just uh, always made the best of it, you know. But um, uh, she carried the burden, you know. The family makes sure everything is running smoothly, and and uh, and at the same time supporting me by just, you know, just just doing her thing, you know, being behind. And uh, uh, it was never like what, what I liked. It was the stability that she created because. Uh, uh, she always very in check with her emotions, you know, and um, and it was never like uh, you know ticker tape parade. If I brought home a trophy or uh, you know like a, a black stripe on her arm, if I didn't, you know, I was right. always, everything was even. You know, the hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really uh, that was uh, what I needed. Yeah, lucky I, you, lucky you, Mario is all. And every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure. And no doubt. And, and you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like an actor or a minor league ball player. But, my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the, the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about uh, that the burden that imposed. Also, Mario, that kind of risk in your own life, because we're going to talk a little about risk. And you, you are, you're a person who puts risk into the calculus, uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there, because uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the 60s, 70s, they, you know, was certainly not as, uh, especially in the 60s, uh, uh, not as safe as it is today. And, uh and yes, uh, we we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, she made 
she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies and and then uh you know my best friend and uh, Billy Foster when he when he was killed and uh Judd Larson and on and on I mean we lost so many uh Ronnie Peterson I mean she was uh, obviously always the one that uh thinking you know when is is he going to come home you know this uh, uh after this race so uh, the spectrum of, of that was always there, and it was real. Uh, there was, we were losing way too many, you know, and unfortunately, and um, and and I'm sure that, that that was always, you know, anxious moments for her as well. Uh, me as a driver, I never, you know, never dwell on that side, obviously. Uh, so I was pretty serene, but uh, but her, I could see that side of. Of, of her just dealing with this uncertainty, um, you know, all the time, every week, um, it had to be, a, you know, tough moments, and, uh, and 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 again, you know, just uh, 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 you could tell there were, you know, I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know. Uh, because you know now watching you know my kids run and, and my grandson and so forth, uh, all of a sudden I have uh, you know different anxieties you know yep. that I ever experienced by driving uh, by being active myself. Yep, I think most coaches know this when or, or, or most athletes when they're playing it's one thing, then they watch their kids play and it's like oh that's what my father was going through. Now yeah. I now there I get it. Now I get it. You know, Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades. and We're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing because I think what people know those things, what they don't know is the man behind the, the legend and the life behind it, and that's what we do here on this series. You obviously were named Driver of the Year in three different decades. Remarkable. Driver of the Quarter Century and, of course, Driver of the Century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you uh, and, to, and to your family. Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that uh, stands out the most on a personal level is uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big group big-time race, and that's where my dream really began uh, or solidified, and uh, and here we go. You know, I win in that place, and then uh, I also clinched a world championship there in Monza, you know, so uh, that has, you know, personally, that nothing comes close to that. Uh, the others are, obviously, they're uh, many races, they're very, every race has got its own uh a shining star, if you know what I mean. It's just, uh, but uh, when you look at the classics, those are the ones that uh, you're judged by, like uh, winning Indianapolis or or, uh, or winning Daytona type of thing, you know, because, uh, again, those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series. Uh, so, you know, everybody would focus on that. I mean, there were... There were others. For me, uh, uh, on a personal level, however, you know, here I go. I go fourth, is uh, uh, winning 
over my son Michael on Father's Day in Portland, 1986, <laughs> you know, and yep. uh, beating him by seven one-thousandths of a second, you know, that type of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And, and uh, when I look back and uh, how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole or how many times we were on podium together while we were even teammates, you know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, when I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen. You know, how fortunate are we? How blessed we are. And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch. If you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had always there with him. When we come back, some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages. was one of those drivers he was one of the bars that that uh, that people would compare themselves to I mean for sure when I started driving you know if I could if I could keep up with Mario or if I could keep up with my dad I'm doing good and if I beat them then I did great this is Lee Habib and this is our American stories and you just heard from Al Unser Jr talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing, and few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife, but ultimately this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, You know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you in this really risky but really exhilarating profession. Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it or uh, or any any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, I said, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business, you know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves. And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line, uh, Mario. Talk about the business of this business, because it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked, and that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, 
then it's got to be a, a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's uh, a lot that goes behind it, the strategies that go behind it. Um, and, um, and again, uh, uh, I... I was always, I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. I just wanted to drive. But the driver is, as a driver, however, always had um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and bring right. us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because, um, I wanted to have a say as to my who my engineers was and suggestions, blah blah blah, and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team, and and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well. And um, I draw for some of the you know the the icons in, in our sport over the years in different disciplines, and I was very very obviously that's just what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results. You know, it wasn't always uphill for you, too. I mean, there were dry spells. And by the way, athletes experience this, too, Mario. How did you handle that? How did you cope? I mean, when things just aren't firing, so to speak, on all cylinders, how do you keep it together? How do you keep positive, especially with all the expectations? And actually, probably some people rooting for you to fail. Yeah, no question. I mean, you've experienced all that. If you're in it for the long pull, believe me, you're going to have the ups and downs. And... uh, and that I mean, the, the, when you're down, that's really what tests uh, your uh, your will, you know, to just pull out of your willpower and uh, your mindset. You know, all of those elements—they're so important because, uh, again, it's <laughs> it's not going to be always a bed of roses. When you're at the top, uh, you know darn well that it's not going to last, and you fight like crazy, you know, to. Uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there, and then, but uh, when it starts going the other way, you know, uh, you can't dwell on the negative. You got to start, keep searching, keep searching, and uh, maintain a positive attitude, you know, to pull out of it. I want to talk to you about class and that income. That is, if you had tried to pursue uh, racing in Europe. Uh, as opposed to your, your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth, would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America where really almost anybody can get anywhere in, in this country? Talk about that. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because uh, quite honestly, if, uh, uh, if we would have stayed in Europe, I, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever, you know, especially within uh, the uh, the age limit, you know, to take advantage of a career, how I could have got started. So uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened uh, during the war, the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative, but it became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because uh, I I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. Uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his uh, 
you know, this farming and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, um, uh, you know, we loved uh, uh, my Uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was uh, an aviator in the aviation. He was in, in, had motorcycles. He had, you know, was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, um, uh, as I say, just if we would have remained there, I probably, uh, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something. Yeah. Now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mara, just personal ones. Um, your biggest regret, that is, the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know... You could always do something better, you mm -hmm. know, by looking at it now, okay, I might have made a better decision uh, a different time. Uh, I'll give you an example, you know, when um, at the end of, uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo, and I went with my heart, you know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend. Uh, engineer there and so forth, and I thought Alfa Romeo was was ready to uh, to spring, you know, into the uh, to the top uh, in Formula One, and and instead I and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another ch world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake, call yeah. it a miscalculation. Yeah, you could, you know, now that I have a chance to revisit, but overall, Lee, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, the, the, the positive way, way overcome the negatives. Uh, and so I, again, no regrets. That's great. What gives you, Mario, at this stage of your life, your deepest sense of fulfillment? The deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions and everything, to have been able to keep the family together throughout. Yeah, and and faith does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that that part of your life. Faith does, uh, and uh, again, uh, not just the fact that um, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle priest, I love that man more than anyone. Uh, he was so such a modern thinker and everything, even then. Uh, and uh, it was just that, but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp, Lorenzo Tamberlini, who uh, really uh, somehow, without forcing things, uh, like uh, he instilled certain values, you know, that you maintain and keep, and, and always knowing that uh, you can't do things alone. You know, you need some help, whether it's, you know, it's, it's an abstract from upstairs or something. You know, you have to invoke something, believe in, in something, and I do. Uh, and and many times I said, you know, I need some help here, please, you know. And uh, <laughs> and, and 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 somehow it, it it works for you. It always did, and it always will. And last but not least, Mario, tell us about a hobby, a pastime, a, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have. 
Well, uh, hobbies, I mean, that's uh, what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I am fortunate we have a, a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and, and I have uh, every toy imaginable, you know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight, uh, we play tennis, we water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic, and uh, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast. You you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some some men is the thrill of speed and the thrill of competition. And that it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older if that's who you are and it's baked into your DNA. Mario, I, I so appreciate you uh, taking the time. And I will most definitely take you up on the offer. By the way, your first victory... Uh, was in a place called Teaneck, New Jersey, and that's where I was born. I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey. So. Yeah, it was a big victory. I had a hundred lapper there with um, in my three-quarter midget. Yeah. Well, I, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti, uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's my pleasure. <laughs> you bet. Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to ouramericannetwork.org. dot